Alright, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host. I'm spending eight weeks doing cardiology this year, two weeks on the inpatient cardiology service, two weeks in the CCU, and four weeks in the consult service. So I'll probably, hopefully, do several podcast episodes on cardiology. In this first one, we'll go over some basics that anyone working in cardiology really needs to have down cold. We'll talk about coronary anatomy, the correlation between EKG leads and coronary anatomy, the criteria for STEMI, how to recognize and remember the bundle branch blocks, fascicular anatomy and bifascicular and trifascicular block, and a little bit about QT interval prolongation. Pretty basic stuff, but again, it's important to have it mastered and to have all the details straight. Hopefully I'll do another episode soon in which we discuss some more advanced things such as the management of VT or ACS, or the supraventricular tachycardias, or some landmark clinical trials, we'll have to see. All right, let's get started. Okay, here we go. Everybody knows a certain amount of coronary anatomy. Most students of medicine know that there is the left main, which bifurcates into the LAD and the left circumflex, and there's the right coronary artery, which supplies the right ventricle and wraps around the back of the heart to drop the posterior descending artery, or PDA. Even patients have heard of the, quote, Widowmaker, that haunting name for the LAD. So as medical professionals, we should know a lot more. First of all, let's review the difference between a right-dominant and a left-dominant circulation. This refers to whether the posterior descending artery, or PDA, arises from the right system or the left system. That is, whether it arises from the right coronary artery or the left circumflex. 85% of the time, it's from the right coronary, so 85% of hearts are right-dominant, or normal. 15% of the time it arises from the left circumflex instead, so roughly 15% of hearts are left dominant. Another anatomical variant to be aware of is that the left main doesn't always just bifurcate into the LAD and the left circumflex. Sometimes it trifurcates, with the third branch coming out in between the LAD and the left circumflex, and that branch is called the ramus intermedius, or just the ramus for short. The incidence of this is also about 15%. Most of these major arteries run along well-defined grooves in the surface of the heart, though when a ramus intermedius is present, it typically does not. Okay, now let's talk about what the branches of all these major arteries are called. There are different names for the branches of each of the major arteries. The branches of the LAD are referred to as diagonal and septal branches. The septal branches are also sometimes called septal perforators, because they penetrate directly into the heart, supplying the anterior two-thirds of the septum, while the diagonals run along the surface of the heart, supplying the lateral wall of the left ventricle and the anterolateral papillary muscle. But just remember that the LAD gives off septal perforators and diags. The branches of the left circumflex are called obtuse marginals. Often there are several of these in a given heart. The acute marginal comes off of the RCA to supply the right ventricle. Usually there's just one of those. It's important to realize that these branches come off of their origin arteries by definition. So if you hear someone talking about an obtuse marginal, you don't have to wonder which vessel it's a branch of, 
By definition, it's a branch of the left circumflex. Similarly, with the diags and the septal perforators, by definition, they are branches of the LAD. And the acute marginal, usually there's just one of those, and that's a branch of the RCA. So do memorize which branches correspond with which major arteries. Obviously, it's helpful to look at pictures or a three-dimensional model of the heart to get these down. But keep in mind that pictures and models won't necessarily reflect anatomical variants. So it's important to be aware of the variations I mentioned. And of course, many other anatomical variations have been seen. It's also very important to be able to look at an EKG and at least be able to take a guess of where the obstruction is in an ST elevation MI. It's actually not really important at all unless you're an interventional cardiologist who's going to be going in there with a catheter. And even then, it's not really that important because you'll define the anatomy at the time with dye and don't necessarily need to have any particular advanced notion of how it's going to look. But it's important because it's fun to think about and attendings love to ask about it. Fortunately, it's very simple. Look at any 12-lead EKG. The three leads that make an L shape in the lower left, leads 2, 3, and AVF, are the inferior leads. This makes sense when you look at where the leads are placed. 2, 3, and AVF are the ones that end up positioned down the patient's body so that they detect the electrical activity of the heart from underneath. These leads correspond to either the RCA or the left circumflex depending on whether the heart is right or left dominant, as we discussed before. So if you see ST elevations in these leads, you can reasonably guess you have an inferior STEMI. 85% of the time, this will be from an RCA occlusion, 15% of the time from a left circumflex occlusion. All right, now turn your attention to the so-called precordial leads, or the chest leads, leads V1 to V6. They're arranged from right to left on the heart, referring as always to the patient's right and left. So if you look at any diagram of how the leads are laid out in relation to the heart, you can see that leads V1 through V4 are positioned just in front of the heart. Thus they are the anterior leads or the anteroseptal leads because they also happen to capture the septum of the heart. This portion of the heart is supplied by the LAD. So if you see ST changes in the anterior leads, you really have to worry that the widowmaker has taken a hit. So far, so easy. Now you basically just have all the remaining leads, which, though confusingly scattered across the EKG report, basically all capture a similar territory. In other words, leads 1, AVL, V5, and V6 are all actually way over on the patient's left side, positioned in slightly different ways. So being on the patient's side, they are appropriately referred to as the lateral leads. ST changes in these leads reflect a lesion in either the left circumflex or a diagonal branch of the LAD, and that's it. You just have those three territories to remember. Let's review them again real quick. Leads 2, 3, and AVF are the inferior leads and correspond to the RCA or the left circ, depending on the patient's anatomy and which artery is dominant. Leads V1 through V4 are the anteroseptal leads and correspond with the LAD. And the remaining leads are the lateral leads, which generally correspond to either the left circ or the LAD via its diagonal branches, though to be honest, sometimes the RCA does get involved just to make things confusing. Okay, you'll notice I left out one of the 12 leads, AVR. It's positioned weirdly towards the patient's upper right and doesn't usually help you localize an MI, though if you do see an elevation there, it can be strongly suggestive of disease in the left main 
which in case I blew over this too quickly before, is what the left-sided coronary artery is called before it bifurcates into the left circ and the LAD, or trifurcates into the left circ, LAD, and ramus. We actually had a heart alert in our hospital just the other night where the patient's only ST elevation was in AVR, and the rest of his EKG was just a bunch of fairly severe ST depressions. His trope was rising fast, and he was emergently cathed, and sure enough, his culprit lesion, which is how the lesion thought to be responsible for ischemia is referred to, was right there at the end of the left main, just before the bifurcation. So these EKGs really do correspond with the anatomy. That's the whole point of the EKG after all. Okay, one more thing to note before we leave this discussion is the phenomenon of a posterior MI. We didn't mention any posterior leads because in a typical 12 lead EKG, there aren't any. The techs are not placing any leads in the back of the patient's body. But it's totally possible for a patient to have a posterior infarction, that is, a heart attack on the back of the heart. The classic clue to this is ST depressions in the anterior leads. If you see those, then you become suspicious for a posterior MI. So you specifically place extra bonus EKG leads on the patient's back. Typically three are placed and are referred to as V7, V8, and V9. Only a modest EKG change is required to make the diagnosis of a posterior MI just 0.5 millimeters of ST elevation in these bonus leads is enough. An MI here is usually from occlusion of the posterior descending artery, or PDA, which, as I've mentioned or alluded to several times now, arises from the right coronary 85% of the time and from the left circumflex 15% of the time. Okay. While we're on the topic, let's formally discuss how to diagnose a STEMI on the basis of an EKG. The criteria are more specific than just any old elevation in an ST segment. To be specific, you have to have ST elevations that are one millimeter in size or greater in two or more contiguous leads. That's definitely a definition you want to memorize. That means two of the inferior leads, or two of the anteroceptal leads, or two of the lateral leads, the adjacent elevations are suggestive of true ischemia. The little exception to this rule regards leads V2 and V3, where you sometimes see ST elevations naturally, so the criteria for these leads are more strict. Basically, you have to have at least 2 millimeter elevations in men and 1.5 millimeter elevations in women in those leads. Okay, so that's how you qualify, so to speak, for a STEMI on the basis of ST elevations. Interestingly though, ST elevations aren't the only way to qualify for an ST elevation MI. The other EKG change that can do it is new left bundle branch block. If the patient has new left bundle branch block and a compelling history, then that too can technically be enough to diagnose a STEMI, though I think most cardiologists would just say that they can't rule out a STEMI and that, you know, it's a suspicious situation and the new left bundle branch block is an ST elevation equivalent potentially, or it or it may be masking ST elevation. Um, but technically, new left bundle branch block is on the list of criteria for ST elevation MI. And don't forget that you can, of course, have your posterior STEMI where you'd see ST depressions in V1 through V3, which would correspond with ST elevations in V7 through V9, as we discussed before. All right, since we mentioned left bundle branch block, and it's one of the criteria for STEMI, let's make sure we know what it is. You may be familiar with the following helpful mnemonic, William Marrow, where the R's and L's and W's and M's are capitalized. 
This romantic sounding name helps remind you which bundle branch block is which. Right bundle branch block is the easier of the two for me to remember and to describe because the R in RBBB reminds you of the distinctive RS R prime wave seen in the rightmost precordial leads that is one of right bundle branch blocks definitive features. The R wave of course is the upward deflection in the QRS complex. R waves by definition are always upward deflections in the EKG. So an RS R prime is an upward deflection followed by a downward deflection followed by another upward deflection. What shape does that form? Well, roughly speaking, the shape of an M. So that's how the M in marrow reminds you of the RSR prime wave seen in the rightmost precordial leads, that is, in leads V1 or V2 and right bundle branch block. And then in the lateral precordial leads, V5 or V6, you see the W, which is really basically usually just a wide S wave. Okay, so now let's consider left bundle branch block, remembered by the word William. Really the most characteristic feature here is the broad, slurred, monophasic R wave in the lateral leads, especially V5 and V6. It might have a little notch at the top that makes it sort of M-shaped, but it doesn't dip below the baseline of the EKG. If it did, it would have an S wave, right? By definition. But since it doesn't, it's a monophasic R wave that is an upward deflection on only one side of the baseline. The letter M is at the end of the word William, which reminds you that this broad, upwards, sometimes sort of M-shaped R wave is found at the far end of the precordial leads over in V5 or V6, rather than at the beginning of the precordial leads V1 and V2. The W reminds you that you often see deep, deep S waves in those early precordial leads in left bundle branch block. So spend some time looking at left bundle branch block and right bundle branch block EKGs. The EKGs can vary quite a bit in how they look, which can be a little confusing, but they do share certain definitive features, and the mnemonic is pretty useful, I think, in helping keep straight which bundle branch block is which. It's definitely important to think about these patterns and to be able to recognize them quickly. Cardiologists will often say things like, looks like a left bundle or looks right bundle-y when reading EKGs and you want to be able to keep up. Especially since left bundle branch block, as we said before, is the other thing to look for on an EKG to define STEMI. But remember, it has to be a new left bundle. So you'd have to have an old EKG, ideally a recent, that lacked left bundle branch block in order to diagnose a STEMI on the basis of left bundle branch block. And of course, you'd have to have a very compelling history and probably some other evidence to suggest an MI. Alright, we're moving right along here. I'm going to quickly cover two more topics and we'll call it a day. First, let's spend a minute talking about the electrical anatomy of the heart, because it doesn't make much sense to talk about bundle branch blocks if we have no idea what that actually means. And then we'll talk for a minute or two about QT intervals and we'll be done. Alright, so most of my listeners are probably at least somewhat familiar with the electrical conduction system of the heart. Electrical impulses originate in the sinoatrial or SA node, then travel to the atrioventricular or AV node, then pass through the bundle of Hiss into the right bundle branch and the left bundle branch. What I'd like to clarify is how the terms bifascicular and trifascicular block map onto this system, because cardiologists will use these terms and it isn't always completely obvious what they mean. The first thing to realize is that the left bundle branch itself has two major branches, the left anterior fascicle and the left posterior fascicle. 
You could be forgiven for not realizing that because we hear about left bundle branch block all the time, but we hear about LAFB and LPFB, or left anterior fascicular block and left posterior fascicular block, much less. But those phenomena, and therefore those terms, do exist, and the terminology about it all quickly becomes confusing. Let's start with bifascicular block. This term usually means that a patient has evidence of both right bundle branch block and blockage or non-conduction or disease in either the left anterior fascicle or the left posterior fascicle. Usually it's right bundle branch block plus left anterior fascicular block. You'll see that written as RBBB plus LAFB, left anterior fascicular block. But you can see how technically left bundle branch block itself is a bifascicular block because both the left anterior fascicle and the left posterior fascicle are blocked. So the thing to realize is that the term bifascicular block is usually referring to two specific fascicles, namely the right bundle and one of the left fascicles. Similarly, the term trifascicular block can be confusing because it can be used to refer to different things. When a cardiologist says trifascicular block is present, what they're most often saying is that the patient has evidence of both bifascicular block, as we just discussed, as well as first-degree AV block, which of course is seen as a prolonged PR interval on the EKG. But technically, you would not be wrong to describe alternating right bundle branch block and left bundle branch block as trifascicular block, because if you see that, then you have evidence of disease in all three fascicles. Similarly, complete heart block is certainly evidence of trifascicular block, technically, but nobody would call it that. They'd just call it complete heart block or third-degree heart block or third-degree AV block, which of course are all equivalent terms. So trifascicular block sounds like it could mean a few different things, but usually if you hear the term, it means bifascicular block plus first-degree AV block. And again, bifascicular block means right bundle plus block in one of the fascicles on the left side, usually the left anterior fascicle. Okay, so to master cardiology, you've got to understand both how these various terms are used in practice and what they could also mean if you think it through. The SVTs are another example. Usually we say AVNRT, AVRT, and atrial TAC are the three SVTs, but technically AFib and AFlutter are also SVTs. So the point is there's a little bit of a difference between what's technically correct and how this stuff is actually discussed in practice. I'll talk more about the tachycardias another time. But, you know, that discussion may have been more confusing than helpful, but the point is you've got to think these things through and just read up on anything you don't fully understand. Okay, let's just say a few words about the QT interval and be done. We probably all understand already that this is the interval that's measured from the beginning of the QRS complex to the end of the T wave, that if it gets too prolonged, the patient can develop torsades de pointes, however you pronounce that, torsades de pointes, a life-threatening sinusoidal-looking arrhythmia whose name means twisting of the peaks in French, and that a lot of different medications can lead to prolongation of the QT interval, including various antibiotics, antipsychotics, and antiarrhythmics. You may also know that a corrected form of the QT interval known as the QTC is the more meaningful value because it adjusts the interval for heart rates. The little tidbit I wanted to add is that you shouldn't necessarily trust the number spat out by the EKG machine as it will often overestimate the QTC. 
So if you want to look baller, you'll calculate the QTC or corrected QT yourself. You do this with the same formula the computer is using. You get the QTC by dividing the QT interval by the square root of the RR interval. So you have to actually take the EKG and find the longest QT interval on the page and then take the surrounding RR interval and measure them both and do the math. If you want to be really fancy about it, be aware that a slightly different formula is preferred at very high or low heart rates. Namely, you divide the QT interval by the cube root of the RR interval. This is called Friderichs formula, while the first one was called Bizet's formula. You definitely don't have to know that. Those aren't even on cards boards, I don't think, but just a little bit of trivia for you. You definitely do want to know what the cutoff is for a normal QTC value, and also that this cutoff is different for men than it is for women. The word men is shorter than the word women, so you can use that association to remember that the value for men is smaller, namely 450 milliseconds or so. Anything greater than that is prolonged. For women, anything greater than 470 milliseconds is prolonged. But you do see some slightly different numbers depending on your reference. Up-to-date notes that after puberty, the 99th percentile for men is 470 milliseconds and it's 480 milliseconds for women. So whether you use 440-460 or 450-470 or 470-480, you're probably doing a pretty good job of paying attention to your patient and you're hopefully thinking about holding any medications that might prolong the interval further, especially if they start getting up around 500. All right, that's a wrap. As always, please feel free to email me with questions, feedback, or comments at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please do leave a rating or a review, or better yet, send a link to the podcast to a friend. All right then, see you next time.